Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. If you're observing Yom Kippur, we hope you're having an easy and meaningful fast. <laughs> Later in the show, acclaimed actor John Lithgow. He'll be in Amherst this weekend as part of the Capitol campaign for a new Jones Library there. We'll talk about his relationship to Amherst and the library, and we'll geek out about his incredible acting career. And just down the street from the Jones Library in Amherst is the Emily Dickinson Museum. And starting tonight, going through October 1st, is the 11th annual Tele. Slant Poetry Festival. The festival is an event with international reach that celebrates Emily Dickinson's poetic legacy and the contemporary creativity she and her work continue to inspire from the place she called home, Amherst, Massachusetts. This year's free and hybrid festival includes events happening online as well as in person at the museum. And this year's lineup includes poets Marilyn Nelson and Ab- Abigail Chabonatoy on an Apple TV Dickinson screening with creator Elena Smith, the annual Poetry Marathon, a group reading of all 1,789 Dickinson poems and more. There's so many of them. She was so prolific. <laughs> Joining us today is Brooke Steinhauser, senior, senior director of programs at the Emily Dickinson Museum. Michael Mercurio, local poet from the Fabulous 413 and director of community engagement for the Faraday Publishing Company, who will be co-hosting the program Displaced this Saturday at the UMass Museum of Contemporary Art, as well as hosting some events at the Emily Dickinson Tell It Slant Festival. And Adrian Blake Ensko, an actor who plays Austin Dickinson on the Apple TV Plus series Dickinson. He'll be joining the festival for the Dickinson screening this Saturday at the Dickinson Homestead and Museum on Main Street in Amherst. Welcome so much. So much welcome. <laughs> Thank you. So, much, so many of us to welcome. Yes, there are plenty of you to welcome. Uh, Brooke, uh, who's the director of programs at the Emily Dickinson Museum, let's start with you. What? Why is this festival called Tell It Slant, if people aren't familiar with that as a phrase? This, uh, this festival, um, we, we actually renamed this festival about three years ago, Monty. So uh, if you've been around Amherst longer than that, you may recognize it as the Amherst Poetry Festival, which is how we uh, started this whole thing about 11 years ago. Um, we changed it to Tell It Slant Poetry Festival in honor, of course, of our favorite poet, Emily Dickinson, who uh, wrote a wonderful poem, maybe we'll have a chance to read it later, um, that invites people to see things a little bit differently. And we think that's what poetry can offer the world. So uh, that's, that is the name of our festival. And what, did, what do you think she meant by telling it slant? And how does that incorporate itself into this festival in its 11th year now? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that Emily Dickinson had many ways of seeing the world. She said she saw New Englandly. Uh, but of course, we also know that she saw far beyond the reaches of her native home. She uh, managed to write about countries she never visited. She managed to write about vistas she'd never seen. Um, and I think there's something about the spark of imagination in that. Um, and that's what that's really what the festival and what the museum celebrates is um, the the places that we can go uh, without maybe ever even setting foot outside of our doors. Not to make it more of a sprint and sports based, but has there ever been a time where you haven't made it through all 17, almost 1800 poems in your marathon? <laughs> Never, no, Khalees, we, uh, we have to read to the bitter end. Um, there, there was a time, so the Emily Dickinson Poetry Marathon ha- actually predates the festival. It's been going on for, we, we think this is its 20th year. 
Um, so really, it uh, started right about the same time that the Emily Dickinson Museum was founded. And back then, uh, it was a consecutive reading. So it takes about 14 hours when you read all 1,789 poems consecutively. And uh, there are some great anecdotes from the folks who, you know, were doing it in those early years of, um, you know, when you get to the bitter end and it's late at night and you're exhausted, you can't you can't keep sitting. You have to stand up and move yourself from room to room of the Emily Dickinson Museum to and read a poem in each space to kind of keep yourselves going. Uh, so you know it's always been it's always been a um, a program with a lot of uh, devoted, dedicated readers, uh, and that's still true today. Even though we we chunk it up into you know seven sections now to make things a little more doable. Right. Who do, who does the reading? Brooke Stenhauser, who's the senior director of programs at the Emily Dickinson Museum, and it, it begins tonight, right at six. It does. It begins shortly after this. Um, I'm super excited to kick it off with everybody. I'll be there. Um, and there will be probably close to 30 other volunteer readers. So each session has its own sign up. And it's actually not too late if people are inspired by this and want to want to spend two hours of their life uh, blissfully reading Emily Dickinson poetry together. You can sign up to do that. Um, so each time it's a different group of volunteers. But there are folks who do um, multiple sessions. There are even some folks who do every single session. Wow. That is yeah. a lot of poetry. It's a lot of poetry. And is, it, is it chronological or do you change the order every year? Oh, it's we follow the order that is within the Ralph Franklin reading edition of Emily Dickinson's poetry. So Emily Dickinson, if you know something about her, you might know that she didn't publish a lot in her lifetime. So there are all these different posthumous editions and we opt for the Ralph Franklin edition. It's roughly, it's in as close as we can maybe get to a chronological order. Dickinson didn't really title or date her poetry, so that was a real challenge for Franklin, but uh, he's done the best he could. <laughs> she didn't really date anybody, from what I understand. But, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Rim shots for everybody. We're speaking with Brooke Steinhauser from the Emily Dickinson Museum. The Tell It Slant Festival begins tonight and goes through October 1st. Uh, there will be working poets that will be part of this festival, including Marco Mercurio, who is joining us as well, and Adrian Blake Ensco, who plays Emily Dickinson's brother in the Apple Plus TV Dickinson television show. Um, Adrian, you're you're a younger person in your your young your early 30s. Tell me what what your relationship is as a creative person to the work of Emily Dickinson. Well, um, I, I mean, I grew up in upstate New York, which is not too far removed from New England, and so uh, I always kind of, I mean, I, I experienced her in high school as a poet, and I always thought her use of rhyme very unique and interesting. That's also the thing that I love about the tell it, about having tell it slant in this, in this uh, poetry festival's title is that like her use of slant rhymes, which was like not quite exact rhymes was actually something that really opened up poetry in the English, in American English language poetry. Um, so I don't know, it was, a, it was a huge eye-opening experience to be a part of the show Dickinson. It was kind of like getting to paint a vivid picture inspired by all of these works of Emily's poetry, um, you know, be accessible uh, and very, uh, because there's a lot of them are, are pretty short. They kind of let you uh, read onto them a lot of different things. And so I feel like I got a very unique experience getting to be involved in this. And, and uh, each episode 
had one poem that was associated with it that Emily was writing uh, during the course of the episode. So uh, obviously some of my favorite, my favorite poems of Emily's are the ones that were embedded into certain episodes that I hold very dear. Um, although Tell It Slant, I don't think it was made it into the show. That's a very, very, very dear poem to me. Um, I guess we'll but just yeah, have it, to have a season four, Adrian. Yeah, we'll just, we yeah, just yeah exactly. the show's over, <laughs> but we got to bring it back. Bring it back, yeah, <laughs> to do that poem. But I'm really, really excited to see all of the different local poets and poets from around the country that, that come in to see, um, to, to be a part of this festival, because I, I think it's a really incredible way to honor Emily and her work um, in, in bringing out and, and developing the American English language. So... I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited to see you, Michael. <laughs> I'm so excited to see you, Adrian, and to just be in the incredible space that the festival creates every year. I mean, this is my fourth, I think fourth year being involved uh, as a steering committee member, and it's the high point of my year. Uh, it's just an incredible week of poetry and camaraderie and connection. Um, you know, Emily Dickinson may not have had any kids of her own, but you know, every poet I know is a grandchild of Emily one way or the other. Everyone who is writing today has benefited from her incredible vision, her incredible facility with language, her playfulness with, with slant rhyme and meter. Uh, it just reverberates and you know, if, if you come to the festival, if you hear Marilyn Nelson read, if you hear Abby Shabatnoy read, you will hear it. You'll hear it with Sammy Miranda and Enzo Ceylon Surin. Uh, she's inescapable in the best possible way. <laughs> I feel like that applies to your own work, Michael. I was reading through some of the things that have been published by you in journals, and just looking at it across the page, it looks a lot like her work, too. You can easily see some of the similarities. How has her work personally influenced the stuff that you write? I mean, I... <laughs> I said she was inescapable. Uh, I'm really glad to have Emily Dickinson as, as you know, sort of the better angel of my nature sitting on one shoulder while I'm writing. You know, I can always, when I get stuck, when I have writer's block, when I run into a poem that I just can't finish, I can turn to her and get an idea on how to approach it. And, you know, it helps that she left so many poems. But, you know, it's just her intellect was, we talk about galaxy brain. Hers was like multiverse brain. And that is an invaluable thing to have when you're trying to figure out just what you want to write on the page. That is poem. And I have to- Oh, go ahead. I have to, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I just have to say that like Michael Mercurio and all of these other poets who, and creatives like Adrian, who, who join in the festival, um, the whole point is to place them alongside that legacy. Because for us and for the people listening around the world and watching around the world, um, that, that uh, you know, contradiction or that, that, that placing them side by side offers a whole new view of who Emily Dickinson was, what she was about, what she's left us and why she still matters. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's fabulous. Yeah. 
That Absolutely. is Brooke Steinhauser, the Senior Director of Programming at the Emily Dickinson Museum, as well as poet Michael Mercurio, and actor Adrian Blake Ensko, who plays Emily Dickinson's brother on the Apple Plus TV series. They're all part of the Tell It Slant Poetry Festival, which begins this evening virtually, and then in person at the Emily Dickinson Homestead. We'll have more from those folks and talk more about Telling It Slant coming up. And later in the show, actor John Lithgow, who this weekend is coming to the school across the street from the Emily Dickinson house. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. I know why you put these songs here. Oh, I'll tell you. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. And this is Ernest Tubbs' version of The Yellow Rose of Texas, which is one of the many songs that you can take any poem from Emily Dickinson and set to music of this song. It's uh, our friend Jill Kaufman from the NEPM News Department did a story about this uh, earlier this year. There's another classic one that we'll talk about in a little while. And uh, we are talking with Brooke Steinhauser, who's the Senior <laughs> Director of Programs at the Emily Dickinson Museum, who are hosting the Tell It Slant Festival, which begins this evening and goes through October 1st. We're also joined by Michael Mercurio, the local poet from here in Western Mass, who's the Director of Community Engagement for the Faraday Publishing Company and longtime participant in this festival, as well as Adrian Blake Ensko, an actor who plays Austin Dickinson on the Apple TV Plus series Dickinson. He'll be coming for the fest to the festival for a screening this Saturday at the Dickinson Homestead and Museum on Main Street. Uh, Adrian, you played Emily Dickinson's brother, and her brother famously mm-hmm. lived across the the yard, essentially, from her <laughs> in the Evergreens, which are real places that you can go and visit in the fabulous 413. Have you ever been to a- Emily Dickinson's homestead or the Evergreens where you allegedly lived? Oh, yeah. I um, actually have uh, uh, my, my aunt and cousin uh, growing up lived in Northampton. So, ah. And, and uh, my mom actually lived right down the street uh, when she was a kid in uh, on Main Street in Amherst. So uh, it, it's always been exciting to go there. I during During the shooting of Dickinson, we actually did a little field trip with the with the Dickinson the Dickinsibs is what we call ourselves <laughs> the, the group of siblings including uh, including Ella who uh, who played Stu um, Austin's wife and also uh, in our show Emily's sometimes lover um, and so uh, you, it's amazing when you're standing in the evergreens you you really can see right across the yard there's almost there's like a path that goes straight from from the homestead to the evergreens the the two buildings kind of seem like they're talking to each other it's like austin really wanted to wanted to get away and make a name from for himself and he made a lot of design choices very victorian kind of overbearing with the tower um uh choices that that were in stark relief to the way that the homestead is built and yet it's right next door (laughs) and they're basically from the same family so uh yeah actually i i even i think the last time i was there um, it was when there were renovations happening for the homestead. So I'm I'm really excited to see uh, the new and improved Dickinson Museum. Um, but that was uh, an amazing event because I actually, it was during the pandemic. So that's the other reason it was closed. And I just, we were passing through, I was passing through with my band and Elena Smith, uh, the showrunner and creator of Dickinson happened to be there with her family. 
and we just kind of the stars were aligned and we met each other and i i really that feels like such a cosmic force that made that event happen mm. so we just walked around and talked about it was before we shot season three so we talked about some of the things that we were seeing peeking through the windows there's some really interesting things like there's a, a big uh fossil that you can see through the window of the evergreens and i was i was trying to get elena to write something about that into the show so i was like <laughs> what what is austin doing with this giant spine i think i talked to jane later and she was like oh yeah that was a whale spine um <laughs> so yeah no it's a who keeps a whale the, spine like, in their house <laughs> <laughs> you know they liked curiosities they were party people they they liked they and like even though emily never traveled to another country there was all this talk about what was happening and there were like there were these scintillating intellectual conversations about where the world was going at that time um so it, i don't know it's a I feel like they live that through their props. Is the um, whale spine yeah. one of the 8,000-piece museum collection that has now gone live on the internet? Brooke Steinhauser <laughs> from the Emily Dickinson Museum? Do you know museum? what? I, <laughs> that's a great question, Monty. Um, I think that that uh, particular object may not be on that database <laughs> just yet. Okay. Um, but, but, <laughs> which, is, which, don't worry, it's coming. Okay. Um, there, there are a few objects remaining that just have to make it onto the database, but uh, the database did just launch about uh, two weeks ago now and yes you can see the entirety of the museum collection there we are the sort of foremost assemblage of Dickinson family and material culture anywhere in the world um, I was just just thinking about Adrian's comment though about the whalebone made me remember that one of the many things I loved about the show uh, were the the sort of set dressing pieces that um, we don't necessarily have at the museum right they the set dresser opted to really embellish Emily Dickinson's bedroom with an assortment of oddities. Do you remember that, Adrian? Like little skulls and um, you know sets of, of bones and natural fauna and flora and all, all, fossils there these, maybe. There are these incredible collages that were really popular of butterflies with women's yes. faces on them. That I. I don't know if we can prove that Emily I, had those taped to her wall. But. However, I do feel like that's befitting of someone who would write a poem entitled Hope is a Thing with Feathers. Yeah. So, <laughs> Butterflies have feathers? Look, you. I'm just checking. <laughs> the Tell It Slant Festival begins this evening, and we are speaking with Brooke Steinhauser, who is the director of programs at the Emily Dickinson Museum, as well as Adrian Blake Ensko, who is the actor who plays Austin Dickinson on the Apple TV series Dickinson, and Michael Mercurio, who's a poet and has been part of this festival for years. Michael, would you grace us with a poem of your choosing? Sure, I'm happy to do so. I'm gonna start with what might be my favorite Emily Dickinson poem. It's number 466 in the Ralph Franklin uh, edition, if you are following along at home. <laughs> I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose, more numerous of windows, superior for doors, of chambers as the cedars, impregnable of eye, and for an everlasting roof, the gambrels of the sky, of visitors the fairest, for occupation this, the spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. She told it slant in that one. That wasn't a true yep. rhyme at the end. And the other thing that's so cool about Emily Dickinson is her rejection of the iambic pentameter, right? And so even calling it 466 sounds like you're referring to a hymn. And she based a lot of her rhythm 
on uh, the style of, of hymns, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if Michael, you want to, are familiar yeah. with this as a poet and want to jump in? Yeah, it was called Common Meter because it was the meter in which hymns were commonly written. And as you pointed out earlier, The Yellow Rose of Texas is also written in Common Meter. And there are a number of other songs that you could sing Emily Dickinson poems to as lyrics. I am tempted. The Gilligan's Island theme song yes. is another well-known. That's the best one. <laughs> My favorite one to use. Um, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to read that same poem to the Gilligan's Island theme, do you? I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose, more numerous of windows, superior for doors, of chambers as the cedars, impregnable of eye, and for an everlasting roof, the gambrels of the sky. Of visitors the fairest for occupation this the spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise i love it <laughs> i can't unhear it now which is kind of sad because the poem is so great uh, and the poetry is so great and sometimes i get distracted by gilligan's island but it makes it easier to memorize the poems, though. It That's does. true. It does. And speaking of how great the poems are, I, I need someone to talk about the spectacular translation machine because it is such a cool thing. Maybe that's you, so, Brooke. Yeah, these are our um, the uh, these are our wonderful partners, another fabulous four one three entity, the Translation Center at UMass, um, which has an academic sort of component of their operation and also is available, as I understand it, for you know contracting services out for translation. Um, we've partnered with them for a lot of years now at the museum. Um, Emily Dickinson herself has been translated into dozens, I wish I had the exact number, but dozens of languages, global languages, um, and we love to celebrate that fact and, and of course celebrate the, the, the very um, amazing art that is translation of poetry. Uh, so we're working with them this year to bring a project that they have created and have previously done at um, some of the local elementary schools. Uh, this is an Emily Dickinson specific spectacular translation machine. So you can come to their booth at the festival tent and you will be invited to contribute your feeling of what you are seeing in her manuscripts of poems, of letters, of even maybe a cooking recipe or two um, to lend your your voice to the the wider translation of these materials into multiple languages, even maybe an English to English translation um, that sort of crosses the century centuries. It's interesting because so, we, um, we talked yeah. with Amherst College professor Elon Stabans, who just opened a book of translated uh, a bookstore of translated works on Main Street in Amherst within easy walking distance of uh, Emily Dickinson's homestead there. So the whole, there's this That's synergy right. about trying to bring different works into different people's language, right, happening on Main Street in Amherst. That's right, and Monty, he, um, he just completed uh, some Spanglish translations of Emily Dickinson. Oh, wow. Um, which he read for us uh, at the museum as part of our phosphorescence contemporary poetry series uh, just last month. He. He did that. So, um, yeah, he's amazing. Make it cool. <laughs> well, the festival is incredible. It uh, begins this evening. It goes through October 1st. There will be a virtual reading online starting at 6 p.m. tonight of all 1,789 Emily Dickinson poems read by all sorts of volunteers. There's an indigenous poetic panel. There uh, are all of these uh, late-night garden parties and things that will happen actually at the Emily Dickinson 
Homestead. It sounds like a wonderful time and a wonderful way to get to know better the poetry of Emily Dickinson. It's the Tell It Slant Festival. And apparently they're still looking for people to read. So go to their website and find out more information if you'd like to be a part of the marathon. Maybe we should volunteer. There are an awful lot of poems, Cleese. There's a lot of poems. But <laughs> they're, they're short mostly, so it's okay. Brooke Steinhauser from the Emily Dickinson Museum, as well as Michael Mercurio, who is one of the poets involved and one of the people who has been involved in this festival for quite some time, as well as Adrian Blake Ensko, who has played Emily Dickinson's brother on The Dickinson Show. Thank you all so much for coming on the show today and for participating in this Tell It Slant Festival. Thank you, Monty. Thank you, Colleen. Thank you, <laughs> Our pleasure. Thank you so much. No problem. Coming up, a conversation with actor John Lithgow, who's coming to Amherst this weekend. Yeah, right down the street from the Emily Dickinson Museum. In fact. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Kali Smith. We welcome to the show actor, author, artist, activist, and director, John Lithgow. This Saturday, an evening with John Lithgow in support of libraries, the humanities, and democracy in general, with all proceeds to benefit the Jones Library Capital Campaign. You can make a reservation for this Saturday, September 30th at 7.30 p.m. in Johnson's Chapel at Amherst College by going to joneslibrary.org. John Lithgow barely needs an introduction, but I would like to give one anyway. It's pretty long. <laughs> it's going to be long regardless because your CV is ginormous. Yes, and we're thrilled to have you. But I feel like people should know, John Lithgow, that you've received two Tony Awards, six Emmy Awards, four Grammy Awards. You're a mere O away from the coveted EGOT, but have already been nominated for two Academy Awards. You've also won two Golden Globe Awards, three Screen Actors Guild Awards, an American Comedy Award, four Drama Desk Awards. You've received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and were inducted into the American Theatre Hall of Fame. But what brings you to our fair 413 in Amherst, John Lithgow? Thank you for that introduction, Monty uh, <laughs> and Callis. Callis, it's okay. We said <laughs> we said Lithgow. We said Lithgow a couple times instead That's of Lithgow. So. Well, so I deserve everything I get. No, 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 no. I deserve <laughs> it. I mispronounced I, first. I, <laughs> well, I wondered if it was Callias or uh, anyway. So it's Callis. I'm Calice. delighted to know that. Uh, uh, I'm just, this is a big day for me because <laughs> I've, I've just won four Grammy Awards. Whoa! Oh, wait, so where did I, I get, so you've I, never won four I've, Grammy Awards? I've, I've only been nominated <laughs> for four oh, Grammy Awards. Oh, okay. Of course, I, I, sh I shouldn't, I shouldn't correct you. I no. Should, yeah, no, those are your Grammy Awards just, now. <laughs> They're yours. No, actually, Billy Crystal once introduced me. Uh, I, I, I presented an Oscar years and years ago and he introduced me as a two-time oscar winner and i'm only a two-time oscar nominee so i shouldn't correct anybody <laughs> it's, not... <laughs> it's like anyway, winning I'm... to be nominated as they say <laughs> yes <laughs> I, I in any case i am i'm just delighted to be on your show you sh you sound great i was listening to a bit of it before i came on well it's cool that you'll be right at, at amherst college and there's this amazing poetry uh thing happening right across the street at the emily dickinson homestead i there. know i know em emily dickinson is all over the place it's i should i should sign up to recite a poem yes uh, but it, it, it's it's uh, you know it, it's a great pleasure to to be coming to town. I, I 
there I uh, in my day I've had loads and loads of reasons to visit Amherst. I've been there many times because my brother and his family have lived there for God, about 40 years now and my my folks lived there my my dad God bless him he passed away in Amherst uh, huh. and and we have a lot of family history there and that's that's a big reason why I'm coming and the other is the Jones Library which uh, uh, I'm just coming to the Amherst campus to help raise funds for the renovation of of the library so and what's kept you from moving to Amherst if the rest of your family is here? Well, it's not a big showbiz town. <laughs> <you know? laughs> As it is, I can't decide whether I live in New York or Los Angeles, but those are those are the are two company towns and uh and that's my business. Fair but enough. I get I get to Amherst whenever I can. Mm-hmm. And this is a wonderful excuse to visit family but also to do something good there. As a matter of fact, the, the, the co-chair of the big campaign, the capital campaign for the library, is a family connection. Uh-huh. Uh, her daughter is married to my nephew, whose name happens to be John Lithgow. So that's a, that's a heck of a connection. That sure is. I feel like yeah. the first time that I ever knew you had any connection to Amherst was when I heard somebody spotting you at the Jones Library itself. So not to stalk John Lithgow when he's in, in town, but yeah. the, it seems like a place that you uh, have frequented when you've come to visit. Well, someone has lied to you, Mark. <laughs> so you've never I, been in the I, actual building? I've never been in the library. Uh, I, As a matter of fact, I'm arriving in town on Saturday morning, and I'm going to visit the library okay. so that I have a little truth in advertising. <laughs> uh, but, but no, I've never been to it. I, I've read a lot about it, particularly knowing that I was going uh, to uh, serve uh, shield for it on Saturday night, um, and it's a splendid institution for to all evidence. But no, I've never even seen the library, uh, which is to my shame. But uh, but I'm going to advertise it strenuously on Saturday night. I feel like we should apologize for accidentally making this debunking John Lithgow myths yeah segment no, of our no, show. Like we're we're, we're, we're just deception and lies. The whole thing. <laughs> We thought the only but myth I, we were going to debunk was Lithgow I'm, versus Lithgow, but now we've gone all far afield with but, this. And now I'm benefiting enormously with my four <laughs> Grammy Award. <laughs> They're in the mail, John Lithgow. Right. Anyway, you can deliver me an Oscar. Uh, we'll work well, on it. I think you're working on it really well. I mean, because you are truly a tremendous actor, and you do a, a phenomenal job of playing a variety of characters, although I do think that you are particularly good at playing great baddies. Um, uh, yeah. Some, well, they're, they're, they are a lot of fun, for sure. Does, so. Is it because but then when I hear you in interviews, you sound like the nicest, smartest guy in the entire world. So what part of your our energy do you channel when you're going to play a bad guy in like Cliffhanger or a movie like that? Well, I mean, the, the wonderful thing is, yeah, that is a lot of people's preconception of me that I'm a nice guy. I, I, I've got them completely buffaloed. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I just use that to my advantage. Uh, it's wonderful to upend expectations. Maybe the best example of that was playing the Trinity Killer on Dexter, right? Where where I was literally a like split personality. This this kind of benign and uh, uh, perfectly ordinary good citizen, dean of his church, deacon of his church, 
who has this other side, this other horrifying uh, compulsion, which he has to keep secret from the world. I mean, it's the ultimate actor being a ser- serial killer. Uh, you, you know, it, it's just, it's setting people up for a big shock. Uh, I'm in the business of surprise, you know. Uh, actors are in, are, they want to surprise people. That's the essence of horror, but it's also the es- essence of comedy and drama. You know, a punchline, in essence, is a surprise. It's taking taking people by surprise and making them laugh. And I like to pe- make people laugh and cry and scream out in horror. It's a very strange compulsion I have. You said that Amherst is not really a company town. However, the re, uh, the return of Dexter was filmed in large portion in Western Massachusetts. <laughs> were you right. were you part of that filming when that came to to Western Mass for the filming? You know, they did. Yes, the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> they called me in to just make a kind of creepy and quick uh, flashback reappearance. So I flew into Boston and drove out to. I can't remember what town it was. It wasn't Amherst. Shelburne Falls. Oh, yeah. Shelburne Falls. And there was Michael and Jennifer and all my old pals from Dexter. It was a, it was a wonderful morning. And then I drove back to Boston and, and left town. Every job should be that easy. (laughs) (laughs) We're speaking with actor John Lithgow, who's doing a benefit for the Capital Campaign for the Jones Library at Amherst College this Saturday. You can reserve your tickets by going to the Jones Library website. And we, unfortunately, theoretically, are not supposed to be promoting any of the acting that you've done with uh, many of these projects as the Hollywood actor strike continues. Uh, Oh, that's true. But you have done something particularly interesting to raise money to cover health care for crew members in the midst of this Hollywood labor strike. Would you like to tell people what you are offering so that? Yes. Well, thank you for noticing this and for announcing it. Yeah, I'm happy to promote this. Uh, <laughs> there's a wonderful actress and director and writer named Amy Steinmetz, whom I worked with in Pet Cemetery. And she and another fellow, they came up with this idea of us notable actors doing something odd that could be sold on silent auction to raise money for crew people who are out of work because of our strike. I just thought this was such a kind thing to do. So I offered what I always offer when I'm asked to contribute to a silent auction. I do little watercolor portraits of people's dogs <laughs> and they are surprisingly good <laughs> and people and people are much more sentimental about portraits of their dogs than they are portraits of themselves in fact they never like portraits of themselves but they adore portraits of their dogs <laughs> and they shell out so much money for this Yay! And, and, and i have to say uh, in my own self-defense uh, they are pretty good portraits i mean you can get online and see examples of them and you can even bid uh, so i'm in the business of uh, good-hearted philanthropy on the on behalf of libraries and unemployed crew guys at the moment i, I mean and i really have my heart goes out to these crew members. They're not on strike for themselves, right. but mm-hmm. they are making an enormous sacrifice. And, you know, we actors, if we had any conscience, we are, we are 
terribly guilty about the fact that crew people work much, much harder than we do. So, and they get paid less than some of us. So I figured this was the least I could do. Does that and, I've also, oh, sorry. And, and, and on behalf of libraries, by the way, it should be mentioned, my event on Saturday night is, is for free. People could just come. I think they have to reserve, but they don't have to pay. On the other hand, I intend to shame them into donating. Yeah. I was yeah. about to just do that if you didn't. You don't have yeah. to pay, but come on yeah, now. Right. I, I don't know quite what I'm going to do Saturday night, at this point, but I figure I'll entertain people. I mean, I don't think they would come if they didn't, if I didn't entertain them. But I will say, I'm only entertaining you if, if in your own minds you make a sincere pledge to make a contribution of a minimum of three figures. I mean, I would you still don't... come watch you give us a guilt trip. That would be fun. Yeah, you could shame individual audience members depending on how much they donate. No, that is not what is going to happen at an evening with John Lithgow in support of libraries, the humanities, and democracy in general this Saturday uh, at Johnson Chapel at Amherst College, a benefit for the Jones Library Capital Campaign, where they did get a grant um, from the National Endowment for the Humanities, uh, a substantial yes. challenge of a million dollars. So incredible! This... It's it's actually the most that was was donated to any library in the country, which is a measure of how great this library is and of how well they run things. So well, they certainly very... run it well, but I think when you go visit for the first time, as opposed to the uh, the false information I was given about a John Lithgow sighting at that <laughs> library previous, you'll see that they, there is definitely room for improvement and expansion there, especially yes. in a community that is so rich in literature that the yeah. most famous, arguably American poet grew up right down the street from there. That's right. Yeah. Well, and it's That's just right. nestled between like three colleges. Like it just really should have a better facility in general. So I, I hope you can come with me on Saturday night because I, I need to say everything you just said just, <laughs> ju just just as eloquently as you just said it. Well, in addition to your so. your Grammys, we've now given you some cliff notes, so yeah, you, you'll that's be right. fine. Yes, exactly. and, and all we ask in return is a watercolor portrait of one of our pets. No, oh, it'll make me sorry. sad. Through the nose, Paige, through the nose, and you too. <laughs> you too will have a, a mediocre portrait of your dog. <laughs> Why just dogs? Will you do cats? You know, they asked me that question, and I, I sort of grudgingly said yes. But, I, but, but I'm a dog person. You have so to pay I, more I, for cats. I, yeah. I, I don't think it, would be, it wouldn't be infused with as much enthusiasm. <laughs> we are speaking with actor and author uh, and activist John Lithgow, who is coming this Saturday to Amherst College, Johnson Chapel, an evening with John Lithgow in support of libraries, the humanities, and democracy in general. We're going to nerd out a little bit about some of our favorite moments of your acting career, hear more about the Jones Library and how you can get involved in this event happening this Saturday coming up in just a little bit. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. <laughs> Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We are here with John Lithgow, actor, author, activist, director, voice actor. He does so, so much, but he's going to be here in Amherst on Saturday at an event that benefits the Jones Library. There is a capital campaign underway to match a million dollar grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and it is an evening with John Lithgow in support of libraries, the humanities, and democracy in general 
this Saturday, Johnson Chapel at Amherst College. You can go to joneslibrary.org and register, and you don't have to donate, but we will all shame you if you do not. Yes. Um, <laughs> you have done recently some things that I think have been fascinating in, in response, I would say, to the political condition of uh, where we are in the United States right now, one of which was playing Trump in a dramatic reading of the Mueller report, along with a cavalcade of excellent other actors. Uh, I will say from my observation of Trump during his presidency, it was the most articulate I ever heard of <laughs> that person. What was, tell me about that experience and what, when, as I mentioned before, they decided to cast you as a baddie. Um, perhaps that was why they chose you to play Trump? Also, thank you for being a part of the most easily consumable version of yeah. the Mueller report. I, I, li I watched virtually that whole thing and that was, a, that was my experience of the Mueller report. It was fascinating, yeah. It, it and it was actually beautifully done. It was, it was, I suppose you could call it written, but more or less edited by uh, Edward Schenken, the Tony-winning playwright, uh, who wrote all the way the Lyndon Johnson play, mm -hmm. and uh, directed by Scott Ellis, one of the really great Broadway directors. We did it in the Riverside Chapel on the Upper West Side, mm. and it, I think it was on YouTube. Interestingly, it was produced by uh, the Disney niece. I, I wish I remembered her first name. Uh, but uh, uh, she she just she just produced this thing, and it was uh, they uh, uh, they assembled just absolutely wonderful actors: Kevin Klein, Annette Bening, Jason Alexander, uh, and we all just simply read the actual verbatim the words of these people. And Scott gave me my choice of roles and I wasn't gonna let Trump slip away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> interestingly, I, I've, I've been asked to, to play Trump three times now and I, Whoa. I've, I've turned them down except for this on this occasion. <laughs> I just thought it was, uh, unless I'm making fun of him, I don't really feel it's, um, I don't think it's time to actually impersonate Trump just yet. We're still living through this nightmare. Oh, I mean, I, I dealt with it by writing uh, political verse, uh, a political satire in verse, uh, a, a trilogy of, of comic poetry books called, uh, called the Dumpty Trilogy. I don't know whether you're aware of that. I yes, uh, I did. <laughs> yes, I, I am. You have written lots <laughs> of books that are children's books as well. So, yeah. Well, this is sort of I guess it's kind of a blood relation of a children's book. Yeah. Depends on how you want <laughs> to raise your about, children. It's about this infantile man, but but it's mainly <laughs> about about all of the people who have worked for Trump. This crazy menagerie of people, the cast of characters from his his administration almost all of whom were, were sort of fired and insulted and had their lives ruined by their association with Trump by the time the books came out. It was very interesting. Huh. Uh, I, pr I presume they were all delighted that I was doing a, a, a Trump teardown, even of them. <laughs> the other part of the Trump organization that you have portrayed famously is you played Rudy Giuliani on Colbert. Tell us about what, yeah. what that, oh. that role was like and why you were chosen to be Rudy Giuliani on Colbert. Arguably my best work. Stephen, I've done a whole bunch of wonderful 
uh, sort of look-ins on the Colbert show over the years, on both of his shows. Uh, I, I famously read Newt Gingrich's uh, press release once. I remember uh, that. A, a dramatic reading of that. <laughs> yep. So they, they, ca- they called me in. It's always on an impulse. I get a call <laughs> like at 2 in the afternoon. Can you race over here and do Rudy Giuliani? So, <laughs> and, and, the, and their writers are so great that the material is always hilarious. So I always say yes. And uh, now I've done it five times. Uh, I sort of have to be in New York to do it, so I can't do it much these days because I'm not in New York. But I even I even zoomed in as Rudy from Tucson, <laughs> where, where, where I was visiting my granddaughter uh, on one of these occasions. <laughs> we, we sort of set up our own little soundstage in a, in a back room of my daughter's house, uh, a hilarious occasion. <laughs> we sort of suited the whole tackiness of the project, but they're hilarious, those little gigs, and, and Stephen is the most wonderful straight man of that routine. <laughs> he so. certainly seems like it. Oh, the places acting will take you. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, in, yeah. In your career, that's actually true. Like, you came up in an acting family. You went to Harvard, but you trained your acting in the UK. Not to get serious in a cover, in conversation that has been relatively light, but how did that change your perspective on your craft that you've been at for, like, going on five decades? You mean going off to England? To yeah. Study? Well, you know, uh, I, I grew up in a theater family. And my father produced Shakespeare festivals in Ohio. I'd acted in about 20 Shakespeare plays by the time I was 20 years old. I I finished college and got a Fulbright grant to to study Shakespeare in earnest. And yeah, it was kind of a redundancy, but I'd never been to England and I had a wonderful time over there. I think because of that, it's given me some... Uh, bona fides to go back to England and act there quite often with uh, among those wonderful English actors like the London is home to like the the greatest enormous repertory uh, theater company in the world all these superb actors I got to work in with the Royal Shakespeare Company the National Theatre and on The Crown, every one of these was with a huge ensemble of actors who were just fantastic to work with. And many of them have become great friends. And I think that's because, I mean, you you work with a bunch of English actors. They all went to one of about five or six drama schools. One of those is Lambda. And I can always say, yeah, I went to Lambda. So <laughs> I'm one. I'm one of you. And they welcome me with open arms. They give you a pass to play Winston Churchill in The Crown, which is a big role to get for a U.S. actor. Exactly. Can you imagine (laughs) how how intimidating that would be? And yet they had total confidence in me. They much more than I had in myself. Uh, And it was a wonderful experience. But, uh, you know, that Khalees, that was a wonderful question because that really was a life changer for me. It gave me an entree into all that. 
We were telling ourselves, Kalisa and I, that we weren't going to spend the entire conversation talking about your role as Dr. Emilio Lizardo in Buckaroo oh, Banzai. My favorite. Absolutely my favorite. <laughs> but in the minute we have left, can you rhapsodize on the incredible role that you played in that amazing. Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth Because we both love that movie. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Just yesterday, I did like a half an hour podcast about. Buckaroo Banzai. Oh. It's, it's it's still in the water, you know that yes. crazy movie. I absolutely loved that. I I would say there's. It was only because I did Doctor Lazardo that I ever did Third Rock from the Sun. Ah. You know they were both they were both crazy aliens and completely out there performances. It was incredibly liberating just to go completely mad on. For your listeners who've never even heard of this. Uh, they really got to see me in Buckaroo Bonsai. It's hands down my best work. <laughs> Do you honestly believe that with all of the accolades that we started out with, that Buckaroo Bonsai is truly Monty, your best? You, you know me by now, Monty. You can't believe anything I say. <laughs> I think you're ready at the Jones Library when you're not. I think you've got four Grammys when you don't. No, 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 no. I'll be there Saturday night. <laughs> Oh, that is excellent. You will be there. It's an evening with John Lithgow in support of libraries, the humanities and democracy in general. It's an attempt to match a National Endowment for the Humanities grant of a million dollars. You can register by going to the Jones Library website, joneslibrary.org. And as we've mentioned, you don't have to make a donation, but you should. John Lithgow, this has been truly a delight. Thank you so much for joining us. You guys, you guys are great. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Great station. Talk to you. Talk to you again. I hope so. Maybe we'll see you Saturday night. (laughs) Indeed. You come. Come. It's free. I will. Yay. Tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, we're in the midst of Hispanic Heritage Month, and Springfield Public Schools has a magnet school that's in its first year teaching full-time dual literacy in both English and Spanish. We'll take you inside the Herena School in Springfield to talk with Cynthia Escribano, the principal of the school, and Cindy McCarthy, one of the dual language coaches. Plus, Mr. Universe, Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid on what scientists are looking for from a sample sent back from an asteroid on a mission called OSIRIS-REx. Special thanks to Spouse Happy Valley, Guitar Orchestra, Simon and Garfunkel, Ernest Tubb, the theme from Gilligan's Island and Third Rock from the Sun, Kenny Loggins and Michael Bodecker for this song, which is used in what might be the greatest movie outro sequence of all time from the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on the fabulous 413.